to have a pen and paper to hand as well. We're going to look at a number of scriptures as we go along today. We won't have time to delve into each one uh, in the depth that they deserve. Um, but I hope that as we go through this message that during the week you'll be able to just look a bit more deeply into some of the things that come out that are particularly helpful for you. And the scripture we've just read in 1 John is really going to be the anchor for the whole message. And especially verse 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. So we're going to be looking at this whole question of assurance. How can we know without doubt that our eternal destiny really is secure, that our future with Christ is guaranteed? How can we look forward with a genuine, reasoned confidence beyond death and know that it really will be okay? You know, in fact, it'll be much more than just okay. That for the Christian, the very best is yet to come. So we're going to start by looking at some of the hallmarks of genuine Christian faith, because that, of course, is the only basis for general, uh, genuine assurance. And then we're going to look at how on that foundation we can grow and deepen in our confidence. So I want to start this morning really by asking you a question. How assured are you personally of your eternal destiny, of your salvation? If you had to put it on a, a continuum, would you rate yourself as not very sure at all, fairly confident, or, or actually, yes, very confident indeed? It's really settled. Is it settled in your heart and mind that when it's all over, when you've breathed your last or when Jesus returns to rapture his church, if that comes first, that you'll be with him forever? I suspect that many of us know where we're supposed to be, and I'm sure that most of us could provide scriptures to show that we should be very confident indeed. We've looked at some already this morning. If indeed we have Christ as our Lord and Savior. But, you know, for many Christians, for genuine believers, this is sometimes a battle. And if we're being honest, we all have those times when at the very least we feel distant from God, when our spiritual lives are lagging. And if that isn't addressed, it can lead people to wonder if they're really saved. David Jeremiah tells the wonderful story of a time when Albert Einstein was on a train and he lost his ticket. And when the conductor came, he just couldn't find it. And of course, the conductor recognized him and he said, you know, it's OK. I know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. And uh, he moved on down the carriage. But when he looked back, he saw that Einstein was on his hands and knees, still trying to find his ticket. So he went back to him and asked him, you know, what are you doing? It's OK, really. I know who you are. It's fine. And Einstein replied, you know, young man. I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. Now, as we get a little bit older, uh, we can identify more and more with that story. And the fact is, you know, there are many people in our churches who also do know who they are, but are not really quite convinced where they're going still. They know the right answer to give if you ask them the question, but deep inside, there's a degree of uncertainty. How can I know that I'm saved? That is a question that has come from the lips of many a sincere follower of Jesus. Well, it's important to say straight away that it isn't a process or a determined effort that saves us. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. And can I just tell you today as well, it personally it took me many years to really begin to lay hold of the truth of assurance. I was raised as a Catholic, so maybe that had something to do with it. And I know when speaking from many others that my experience 
is far from uncommon. So if that's not you today, this is something you have got squared away already. Well, praise God for that. That's where we should all be. And today I hope for you, this message will further strengthen that conviction. And it will help you to help those you know who do struggle with this. We each have our battles, don't we? So why do genuine Christians sometimes doubt? Well, sometimes it's down to temperament. Some are just more introspective than others. Or sometimes the person had a powerful conversion experience, but over the years, the memories have faded. And, and the question now is, was it real? For others, it might be an ongoing battle against a particular sin. If I were a Christian, surely this would be a lot easier to master. For others, it could be a time of suffering or great trial. Did God really call me to this? And for still others, you know, perhaps they've just been a little bit careless. They've simply drifted. They've become distracted. They've forgotten their first love. And of course, we shouldn't forget the damage that can be done by false teaching. So we must always check everything that we're taught, everything that we hear against the Bible. And when we succumb to that sort of doubtful way of thinking, it has a really profound effect, not just on us, but on others as well. It's harder to pray. It's harder to witness. How can we convincingly tell others about the wonderful news of salvation in Jesus Christ if we have reservations ourselves? Worship can be more difficult. A church can even start to be depressing. Just look at these people all around. They've all got it sorted out, not like me. If we don't grow in and know that assurance, the peace that passes understanding passes us by. But it's important to know again straight away, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. The Apostle Thomas doubted, as did some of the others, even after the resurrection. But they overcame their doubts. On the other hand, the Pharisees were guilty of unbelief. They refused to believe. They had a trenchant, determined unbelief, which consequently sealed their own faith. And, and they represent the cold skeptic, the one who's already decided, you know, he or she knows best. And will not be convinced no matter what. And that's that. But today we're looking really at those genuine followers who sometimes have doubts. It is God's desire we have full assurance. That's why we have these verses in 1 John amongst others. So we don't need to wonder. We're not meant to be walking with our heads down, bent on introspection, living in fear or doubt. We should have our heads high in God-produced confidence. Again, verse 13, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not will have, not could have, but have here and now. And by the way, do you see how John's writings kind of complement each other? His gospel tells us how to be saved. Chapter 20, verse 31, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And this letter is about how to know we are saved. So how we are saved and how to know we are saved. And in the early church, they were often read together. So if you want to grow in assurance, the first step is to make sure you are a Christian, that you've been born again, as we read about in John chapter 3. And I'm going to give you five hallmarks of a true Christian on which we can base that assurance. And the first one is this, a true, a true Christian confesses and believes. Romans 10, 9, 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the first thing to ask is this, have you made this confession? Is he your Lord and Savior? Do you believe, really believe he's who he claimed to be? There could be some listening to this message who have no assurance because they are not saved. You've never bent the knee to Jesus. You've not accepted him as your Lord and Savior. You're not born again. So you shouldn't be assured. Honestly, you have no right to be. You cannot be assured if you do not have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're still in your sins and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has not removed them. You are still liable. But the wonderful news is that you can change that right now. God loves you. Jesus died in your place for your sins so that you can have eternal life and know it by trusting him as Lord and Savior. I'm sure that the church at Fairwood would be more than willing to help you in this. If you've got questions or you'd like to talk something through, please just reach out to somebody there. Don't let the pride stop you doing that. Find the answers that you need. But again here today, what about those Christians who doubt? They are Christians, but they sometimes doubt. You know, some people have a, a pretty dramatic conversion experience and they can tell you the date and the time and the circumstances when they became a Christian. But for others like myself, it was more of a process, those kind of steps along the way. Perhaps you've been raised in a Christian family and you wonder if you've ever made a definite choice or if you've just kind of gone along with everything. But, you know, whether or not you can identify a particular moment isn't the most important thing. The most important thing is that you've made this confession and that you do believe. And again, if you're not sure, why not make it now? That's the first definite step. Nobody just floats into becoming a Christian. It isn't something that's passed on by being baptized as a child or belonging to a church going family. It's a decision. It's a positive confession, that acknowledgement of who Jesus really is. And our reading today talks about accepting God's testimony of who Christ really is. Verse nine. Salvation is found in no one else. If you don't believe that, I have to tell you, you're not born again. You're not saved and you have no sense of assurance because you have no assurance. Verse 12 makes that clear. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son does not have life. So again, I just urge you, if that is you, sort it out immediately. Nothing is more important for you than this question. So that confession and belief is the first hallmark. Here's the second one. A true Christian is a changed person. We cannot be born again and remain exactly as we were. And some people change very dramatically and immediately in a particular way. So some of you, for example, may remember the comedy duo Cannon and Ball from years ago. Uh, Bobby Ball went through a, a pretty rough time, actually, and by his own admission, he was a rather nasty character. But I remember seeing him in an interview after his conversion, and he was explaining how when he became a Christian, so much changed. And, and he said this, he said, a woman walked past me, and for the first time in years, I was able to look at a woman without lust in my heart. That's the transforming power of God within and God can and does change people dramatically and immediately in particular ways like that. But some changes take time 
as God reveals more and more to us. It's the process of sanctification. It's why we're told we need to persevere. So when the Holy Spirit indwells us, he begins that transforming work. He changes us, changes our desires, how we want to spend our time, our money, what we value, how we relate to others. And we grow in holiness. And how that process looks will be different for each one of us. But there will be change. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We still sin, sadly. We still get it wrong. But there must be some change. If you're not sure if you can see that, why not ask somebody who knows you well, somebody who'll be honest with you. And another thing you can do is to keep a journal. And when you read back over it in months or years ahead, it's often surprising and encouraging to see how much we have changed. Those small, almost imperceptible changes daily accumulate. So we have that confession and belief and change. And here's the third hallmark. A true Christian will show love, especially to fellow believers. Have a look at 1 John 4, 7. Let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. You know, I've been very blessed in the past to be able to do a lot of traveling. I love it. It's one of my passions. I like visiting new countries and seeing different cultures and famous landmarks. I've always enjoyed doing things like that. And one of the highlights when I travel is that it's going to church on a Sunday. In some ways, it's just like being at home. I could be very different from the locals in so many ways, but it was just easy to bond with them, to know their genuine welcome. And a Christian values and enjoys that company of other Christians. If you don't like being with Christians, then, you know, that should concern you. Now, we have to be honest here. We don't all get on with each other all of the time. And we might find some people quite difficult to deal with at times as well. Not everyone is nice and agreeable to us. We might even think that some people are a little bit odd. In fact, I remember doing the um, PFS course, the theology course, some years ago. The lecturer was saying to us that good churches will often attract odd people. And he said, who are you thinking of when I say that? And if you can't think of anybody, perhaps it's you. And the reality is that sometimes that's true, isn't it? But, you know, whether we are people are different or difficult, we have to learn to love them. We have the perfect example in Christ of how to do that, don't we? We're all imperfect. We all have unhelpful traits. We're making progress, I trust, but we're not there yet with everything. So we have to have this, this genuine love. John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It, it doesn't mean that we like or agree with what others do all the time. But, you know, if you really don't like anyone in church that much, if you're always finding yourself on the outside with no real attachments, that's not a good place to be. Without being blind to the faults of others or themselves, the Christian will love the company and fellowship of other Christians. Well, the fourth hallmark is that a true Christian will be in conflict. How many of us have learned that we don't just sail through life picking up assurance and peace and joy and lots of other blessings effortlessly along the way. It is a battle. We fight against the world, that ungodly system that characterizes life in a fallen world, like a media and peer pressure that constantly pushes sexual promiscuity, for example. 
when we're born again, we develop new enemies, we change sides, and there will be a reaction. Our old allies will not like it at all. For some, choosing to follow Christ means a loss of friends, career, popularity. For some, their families or even their lives. The world is hostile to the Christian. And we battle against Satan and his kingdom of darkness. And if you don't think Satan is real or that the battle is true, just follow Christ and you'll find out very quickly how true that is. And we battle against what the Bible calls the flesh, that fallen human nature that remains within us, the selfishness, the pride, the greed, the things that resist the new nature that we have in Christ. The transformation has begun. The outcome is certain, but it's not yet complete for any of us. And we know this, don't we, if we're being honest. I love the way that the Apostle Paul puts this in Romans chapter 7. I do not understand what I'm doing. I do not practice what I want to do. I do what I hate. But then wonderfully, he goes on later in that chapter. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So with my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Do you see the conflict? And this from an apostle. And the nature we choose to feed, the spirit or the flesh, is the one that will dominate. If we feed the spirit, we will grow, we will win more and more, sometimes little by little, until we are no more a victim, but more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. And don't we look forward to that day when our battles are over, when we put our weapons down, when we have complete victory in every sense, but that's a future day. It isn't the case now for any one of us. So we battle on. We're in conflict, gaining those victories, that deeper knowledge of the Lord's power and victory in us and living it out. Well, fifthly, a Christian is known by his or her conduct. We live for Christ. Now, we do have to be a little bit careful here. If you look at 1 John 3, 9, it says this. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He's not able to sin because he's been born of God. And he writes something similar in chapter 5 and verse 18. And at first glance, this, this might be a bit concerning. We've just been saying we're in a battle with sin and we don't always win. And it also looks contradictory. In chapter 2, John had written this. And to Christians, remember, in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, how can that be the case? How can John say on the one hand that if we claim not to sin, there's no truth in us because we all do, but also write that if we're born of God, we will not sin? Well, whenever you come to an apparent contradiction like this in the Bible, you should rub your hands real and be excited because if you'll dig deeper, you're going to find some real treasures. And the key in this case, as is so often the case, is the context. So John is writing about sin in a particular way here. And in chapter three, verse four, we get a sense of that. He says this, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And those verbs commit and practice give this idea that here John is talking of sin as a deliberate, intentional, willful, habitual and ongoing practice. Do you, do you see the key difference? This is really important. Christians can and do still sin, sadly, and need to confess as such. But willful sin is not an unbroken, deliberate pattern in their lives. 
Hence, we are not lawless. We sin, we confess and repent, sometimes over and over again in some area of our lives. But we battle and we fight on until we get the full and final victory. But if there's a willful and persistent rebellion with no desire for change, well, I have to tell you, somebody like that, it doesn't matter if you've been baptized, if you prayed the sinner's prayer, if you've done 101 other good things, that person is not really a Christian. And it's a blessing to lack assurance because that might be the prompt for somebody to become one. So just to summarize that little bit up, you know, by sin and lawlessness in this context, John is talking about that deliberate, willful, ongoing rejection of the Lord. And of course, such a person cannot be a Christian. For those who are, we find that the Holy Spirit illuminates our consciences, our minds, our hearts and our conduct changes. You know, look, we're never going to be perfect in this life. But we should be growing. We should be making progress. We should be certainly seeing a lot of difference between how we are now and how we were before we were born again. And that's the Holy Spirit's work in us. That's the ongoing part of the sanctification process, being more and more like Jesus. We change our conduct changes. So those are some of the hallmarks of a genuine Christian, how we can know that we're his. We confess and believe. We're changed. We love. We're in conflict and we behave differently, our conduct changes. Now, in our remaining time, I'd like to, on that foundation, on Christ, look at how we can grow in that sense of assurance. Because the truth is that, you know, the things we've been looking at are helpful, but for some, the battle still rages. They show those hallmarks, they appreciate that they do, but they still have some reservations or questions. And for some, it's a case of being able to see the change. David Jeremiah, again, uh, once very amusingly referred to what he called his drug problem in early life. He was drugged to church every day. Uh, had a, a Christian family. He came from a Christian home. He made a commitment at a very young age. And as we said earlier, you know, for people like that, sometimes the change might not appear as evident as it does when we hear a testimony from somebody like a, a former terrorist or a drug dealer or someone like that. But of course, we do understand the change is no less profound. But that part, person might just start to wonder, you know, was it real? Did I understand? Is it as I remember that it was? Well, as we said before, you know, you, that's something you can deal with immediately. You know, perhaps a prayer, something like this, you know, Lord, if my memory is wrong or if I didn't understand, I make the decision now. And I ask you right here and now, if you didn't come into my heart in some way before, come into it now. And by your grace, I'm never going to doubt this again. You can deal with that very quickly. Well, another obvious way to enjoy assurance is to deal with our sin. We generally find it a lot easier to accept that we're forgiven for sins that we committed before we became Christians. It's those we commit as Christians that we tend to struggle with more. And that can cause some people to fear that they've blown it. God will leave them. They've exhausted his patience. They've gone too far, especially if it's something they've been struggling with over a period of time. And of course, we have the accuser, Satan. He's all too ready and willing to remind us again and again and again of our failures, to reinforce those doubts. Look at that wonderful promise we have in 1 John 1, 9, though. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, remember, this is written to believers. The blood of Christ has not lost its power to cleanse and the promises of God do not and will not change. He is trustworthy, steadfast, sure, dependent, all powerful and so much more besides. He is unchanging and he is more than able to deliver and transform us. He is always faithful. So if there any in that situation, ground down by guilt, by past failure, look up, confess and repent, and then choose which voice you're going to listen to. And it is a choice. Eternal life is a gift that is never rescinded. And we can rest in the truth of that. It's a done deal. That's the whole point of John's letter here. Verse 13 again. Now, if you want to think further on these things, we've had some scriptures earlier in the service already. But have a look at Romans chapter 8 from verse 35 as well. Nothing, no one can ever separate us from the love of God that we have in Jesus Christ. And it helps to remember this as well. This growing in a sense of assurance over a period of time is actually the normal Christian experience. So when we read of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, how many of us know that growing in those areas is a process? And it's the same here for many people, and that might surprise some of you. Listen to this from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he is a partaker of it. Yet being enabled by the spirit to know those things which are freely given of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means, attain it. And therefore it's the duty of everyone to give diligence, to make his calling and election sure, 2 Peter 1.10, that his heart may be enlarged in peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, in strength and cheerfulness, in duty and obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. D did you catch that? The true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he or she partakes of it. And Dr. Joel Beakey on the Ligonier website, he notes that the Puritans had the same perspective. And he, he says they would sum it up like this. That in every exercise of faith, there is the seed of assurance, but for many, it has not yet come to full maturity. And he compares it to an acorn. And the question he asks is, is an acorn an oak tree or not? In a way, yes, it is. Everything that will grow into that mature tree is already there, but it doesn't look like one yet. So when we become a Christian, we have this, this if you like, embryonic assurance, the acorn, but it's not yet fully mature. It's not yet the tree. And usually before a believer grows into that fuller assurance, becomes the tree, it usually takes time and difficulties. Again, we work at our salvation with fear and trembling. We already have it, but the outworking of that is something that we grow into. Now, again, I can't emphasize this enough. Every true believer is safe, and we can be absolutely sure of that. We have that promise. But to really grasp in our hearts and minds and souls, such that we are rock steady on the truth, even in the face of heavy assault within and without, that is usually a longer process with battles along the way. 
And, and part of the reason why is this, you know, when we first come to know Jesus, and I'm talking generally here, when our eyes are first open and we come to Jesus, we're full of what the Puritans call first love. We have lots of zeal and this excitable assurance. But as we go on in our walk with the Lord, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. Some of the pleasant things not, that still remain in us become evident, our sin. It's not all gone, is it? And when that starts to happen, that kind of excitable zeal gets more tempered and seasoned, more reasoned. It's actually better because we learn to appreciate Christ more. It's a bit like marriage. Do you remember the, the early days of your marriage when the feelings were high and you know, you're just excited to be every minute with your fiancé? And when you get married, you know, life just throws things at you and you go through the normal difficulties of life together. Now, if your marriage is healthy, the roots of your love actually go deeper and deeper. But it usually feels different, less excitable most of the time, but better, stronger, deeper, more assured, richer. And that's what happens spiritually for many as well. A wonderful writer, Richard Sibbs, sums it up like this. <clears throat> the more we grow in strength and stableness in the faith, the more we are refined in the faith, the more our assurance will normally grow until we become seasoned Christians in full assurance of faith. Do you see how not knowing this can cause confusion? Did I really believe? Was it really the work of the Lord in my heart? Why don't I feel the same? It's a part of normal Christian growth. I think we get a wonderful process illustration of this in Mark 8, where Jesus heals the blind man. This is the one where he heals the blind man in two steps, remember. In verse 24, after the first healing, I can see, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes again, and then he sees everything clearly, verse 25. Now, again, it is not impossible or unknown for, give, for God to give a great measure of assurance to a new believer and for that to last. We, we're talking general here. It is a little different for each one of us. But normally it's through those battles and those experiences that we grow as we develop our knowledge of the Lord. Now, just one important thing to note is that, you know, age and experience alone do not guarantee a greater measure of assurance. It's what we do with the knowledge. It's what we do with our experiences that counts. So we normally grow in assurance as we get seasoned in grace. But how do we actually do that? How do we grow in assurance? How do we work it out? How do we make our time and experiences count? Well, as we come towards the end, and I will be brief here, um, I just want to give you some practical steps to take. The Westminster Confession has already told us, actually, when it said the believer may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means, attain to assurance. So the first thing is something not to do, and that is to not go looking for an experience on which to base your assurance. Just rely on the normal means. And very quickly, here are four of them. <clears throat> Excuse me a moment. <clears throat> the first one is the Bible. Read it. 1 Peter 2.2. 2. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation. We need to read the Bible properly. You know... Um, the kind of one verse devotion at the start of a day on its own, it will not be enough. We need to read it with intent to search it, meditate on it, listen to sermons on it, absorb it, study it, obey it, 
understand the big picture, sing hymns that contain it. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, give us a great template for how we should approach the Bible if we are serious about growing. In those verses, you'll see that we're to be teachable, obedient, disciplined, storing up his commands, applying what we read to our hearts, persevering, depending, crying out to the Lord for knowledge, diligent, searching for hidden treasure. If the Bible is to get into us and grow our assurance, we need to get into the Bible. And again, I'm afraid that rushed two-minute devotion a day will not be enough on its own for that. Spurgeon made the telling observation that backsliders start with dusty Bibles. You want to grow in assurance, get a good Bible with good study notes to prompt your thinking. It gives us a store to draw on when the battle is fierce. Secondly, we should pray, of course. Prayer is the most amazing gift and privilege. And perhaps if we're being honest, we don't always see it like that as often as we should. I think most of us would know our prayer lives are not what they should be or could be. And it's easy sometimes to take immediate access to God for granted until we realise afresh the value of that provision. That we, even as we are now, can have that personal communion with Almighty God. If we love someone, we want to speak with them, don't we? We want to spend time with them. And our assurance will grow naturally as our relationship with God grows. So we mustn't neglect prayer. You know, the bottom line really for those two measures is this. We reap what we sow. If we don't spend time studying the Bible and living it out, if we don't spend time with God in prayer, alone and with others, we can't expect to enjoy the blessings of deep feelings of assurance. Because this is how the Holy Spirit works. This is our relationship with the Lord. The third thing is partake of the sacraments. Are you baptised? Have you obeyed his command to do so? Do you make every effort to get to communion when it's possible in normal circumstances? And some people might think, well, why? If we've got the Bible and prayer, why do we really need anything else? Well, the first reason is that Christ commanded us to do these things. That's reason enough. But they also help us to see better. Robert Bruce put it well. He said this, whilst we don't get a better Christ in the sacraments than we do in the word, there are times when we get Christ better. They give a time for reflection, a reminder of God's promises, a boost to assurance, a spur to holiness. They're a public testimony to our loyalty. We nail our colours to the mast, an open commitment with no going back. And that's why we should make these things a priority. They are valuable gifts from God. Well, fourthly, and very, very briefly, use your afflictions wisely. Difficulties, storms of life will come to every one of us. I know many will be afflicted right now. The last year has been so difficult for a lot of people. But a godly, trusting attitude when the storms of life are blowing will do a lot to build assurance. It'll give us more clarity, depth of understanding and compassion. You notice that you develop a better perspective. Things that seem so important no longer are quite so important. It gives us a deeper prayer life and a wonderful testimony of the faithfulness of God. And these are reasons, some of the reasons why God allows and even decrees times like this for us. When you go through a hard time and you come out still trusting God, you know what you believe and you know who you believe. So don't let those hard experiences in life go to waste. There are many other things we could cover as well. It's been very much a, a stopgap 
um, exposition really of how to grow in assurance. We've got acts of service, music, fasting, testimonies, one-to-ones, many, many more, but I'm conscious that our time is gone. I just want to close by encouraging you to do something. And that's to pursue assurance. Don't rest until you have it. And when you think you have it, seek more. This transforms our trials. It helps us to be content in all situations. It empowers our evangelism. It makes us want to be with Jesus, sin-free, more and more to enjoy him forever. It's worth the effort. So let's commit to go on. Let's make our calling and election sure, confident in the knowledge that in pleasant times and in difficult times, even when we fear our feet will slip, he will hold us fast. Amen. We'll take our closing hymn, please, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for sharing that. And as Ian just quoted them, we are going to.